0: You are listening to Money on the Left, a monthly interdisciplinary podcast that reclaims money's public powers for imaginative, intersectional politics, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. Benjamin C. Wilson, Taylor Reed, and Max Sussman joined the podcast this month to discuss their forthcoming co-written essay, Food, Money, and Democracy, Cultivating Collective Provisioning for Resilient and Equitable Communities of Work. Inaugurating our new journal, Money on the Left History, Theory, Practice, their article politicizes what Sanjukta Paul and Nathan Tankas term coordination rights across monetary and production sectors and focuses on the coordination of food systems in particular. Now, Wilson, Reed, and Sussman argue that coordination rights are fundamental to the process of building resilient communities, determining whether social provisioning systems are collective or concentrated. Throughout the conversation, Wilson, Reed, and Sussman consider several promising cases for collective provisioning, which prioritize democratic participation and eco-social stewardship over the austerity and profit maximization associated with concentrated industry. Such examples include La Via Campesina, Movement for Food Sovereignty, the Black Cooperative Movement in the United States, and restaurant reactions to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Lamenting the failures of such models when faced with systemic illiquidity, our guests also importantly extend collective coordination principles to monetary systems, exploring small and medium-scale monetary experiments that use food systems as a way to build community capacity. It's a wonderful interview and an even better article, which we highly encourage you to check out at moneyontheleft.org later this month, in the new journal, Money on the Left, History, Theory, Practice. Thank you to Ben, Taylor, and Max for joining us, to Nanin Kula for the theme tune, to Megan Sauce for the graphics, and to Mercedes Olin for the transcripts. If you'd like to support our work at the Money on the Left Editorial Collective, please visit the link in our show notes to head to our Patreon and become a monthly subscriber. Max, Ben, and Taylor, welcome to Money on the Left. Thank you. Great to be here. We've invited you all on the show this month for a very special reason. You three have collaborated on the very first, the inaugural peer reviewed article to be published in Money on the Left, the journal. And the title of that article is "Food, Money, and Democracy: Cultivating Collective Provisioning for Resilient and Equitable Communities of Work." So, first of all, thank you all so much for this really great article, and congrats! Uh, this was a anonymous peer review process, and uh, I think we can say. There's probably nothing wrong with saying that the anonymous reviewers were very impressed with, with the piece, and uh, I think the editorial team was as well. So we can't wait for listeners to read your piece. So while we don't want to spoil it exactly, we do want to kind of give a sense of what's coming, and I don't know if there are, and maybe we, uh, listeners or anyone else on the call can correct me, existing journals that do this sort of thing. So we're experimenting, and we're glad that you're experimenting with us, but to kick things off... Um, would each of you mind telling us just a bit about your yourselves, your your professional and personal backgrounds in ways that, that may be relevant to the stuff that we're discussing vis-a-vis your article? We don't have an order preselected, uh, but Max, Ben or Taylor, would you kick us off? Just tell us a little bit about yourselves and, and your work. Well, maybe I'll go first. (laughs) We know you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Ben, you're the easy one. You've been on here twice, right? Uh, So yeah, this is my second appearance on
1: Money on the Left, so I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, I am an economics professor uh, currently at SUNY Cortland in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. Uh, I study food systems and monetary systems, and I'm always looking for ways that I can teach students doing by creating learning by doing opportunities supplied and service learning and things of this nature. This paper is kind of the confluence of like all the things that I really enjoy about the Academy, about teaching, about learning uh, and about, you know, trying to make the world a better place through public provisioning and education, etc. So maybe I'll, I'll pass it on to Max next. To-
2: well, um, Let's see where to start. I've been, um, I've been a chef my whole life, and that is primarily uh, what I'm doing here. Um, I started cooking when I was in college. I was studying uh, American studies at the University of Michigan, and I got into cooking because I really enjoyed it and um, as a job in college to, to make some money. And I basically just never really stopped. Um, I'm uh worked in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a oh, good seven years or so and then moved to New York and cooked there. And um I've always been uh interested in food and sort of um everything that goes into it. So when you're a chef, uh you pay attention to where your ingredients are coming from and you pay attention to like um the farms that grew them, the seas that produce the fish that uh, that you're eating, and the people that grow the food. And, um I should say, not all chefs do that, but they probably should. And um, I uh, always, so these things were always super important to me. And um, as I started to uh, kind of go further in the career, um, I ended up. Uh, working with a group of like-minded chefs in New York um, and helped found a group called FIG, which stands for Food Issues Group. Uh, Catchy name. Um, (laughs) And um, we formed this group as like a sort of education and action group for chefs and restaurant professionals who were interested in some of these Social justice issues, environmental issues, uh, workers' rights issues that aren't commonly considered part of, say, the food media uh, landscape. Um, let's see so that that was a big part of what i've I've done and then um, I moved back to Michigan uh, just before the pandemic, and then I sort of left being in a day to day restaurant environment. And I started basically working for myself in that environment. I made pizza as a pizza pop-up, took my pizza operation, my mobile pizza operation around to different bars and coffee shops in Ann Arbor. And, um, I'm also currently working as a private chef for a family. And I also, um, own a fast casual restaurant with my brother in, uh, in New York City where he is the, uh, Managing partner, so he's there on a day-to-day basis, and I'm I'm still a partner. So there's kind of a lot of um, a lot of that's kind of like a little flash background of my professional career. Um, I think uh, it was probably two years ago. Like I don't know exactly the date, but it was around two years ago where I actually heard um, heard Ben on Money on the Left talking about the Uni proposal. Uh, and as well as talking about, you know, um, food systems and food justice and how to sort of tie all these issues together. And uh, I just kind of stumbled upon MMT in that moment and heard the podcast and I um, reached out and we started a conversation that kind of led to, I think, led to us all being here today. So, a roundabout answer to that question. You told told uh, told us not to be uh, brief, so there you go.
0: Don't be afraid. Yeah, tell, <laughs> I, 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 I'm also like I, your your mic sounds amazing. What, what what are you rolling with there?
2: It's a um, Audio Technica mic. Nice. I'll send you the link after to podcast <laughs> right. or to podcast. I'm glad right? I got it yeah. in the right spot too. So that's good. Yeah.
3: Hey, I'm Taylor Reed. I'm an Associate Professor of Applied Food Studies at the Culinary Institute of America, and uh, I always have to tell people that even though I work at the Culinary Institute of America, I am not a chef.
4: <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> I teach farming and food systems uh, farm to table uh, I teach a lot about the connections between the restaurant and the rest of the world. I teach topics like climate change and food waste and my, my research interests, I think um, like my background are pretty eclectic. I've, I've, um, I've studied beginning farmers and organic farming standards. Um, I've also done some work on um, farming and foraging and food insecurity in the zombie genre. And um, more recently I, I've been pretty interested since coming to the culinary Institute four years ago I've been really interested in um, in thinking about what chefs do and and why they do um, the things that they that they do and, and we can talk about this in a little bit like my one of my initial interests that um, we were originally going to study, was chef's motivations for including foraged foods on their menus. I'm really interested in foraging. Um, I love that there's this new kind of um, resurgence of interest in foraging. Um, and I think that there are a lot of interesting economic questions around that too, because while it's it's sort of simultaneously like this free de- read Democratization of the food procurement process. It already also in within the restaurant world can sort of um, have an element of elitism and um, tends to be the purview of some of the higher end restaurants that you might pay four hundred dollars a plate to uh, <laughs> to eat at. So I, I'm still really interested in in that question, um, but uh, we we kind of drifted toward uh toward covid because i guess when we first got together we were we were going to ask that question and then this pandemic hit and it just didn't seem appropriate anymore it seemed like there was another much bigger question that was a lot more pressing you know because not only was the pandemic sort of the dominant piece of the news cycle at that time but um we were all seeing what it was doing to the restaurant industry and um, calling up chefs and talking to them about something other than COVID seemed—it um, just didn't seem right. It didn't feel right at the time.
5: So maybe this is actually a, a good moment to pivot to our second question, which is—I uh, think some of you have already started to answer—but essentially, how did? How exactly did you did you all come together? Um, what shape or shapes has this collaboration taken? Um, what do you guys what do you guys talk about? What do you you guys um think about together? And how are you learning from one another? Just tell us about this kind of process and how it's unfolded.
1: Yes, I think the you know for Taylor and I have known each other for quite a while now. Uh, I think I met Taylor early in my family's relocation to Ithaca uh, through. You know, our children's friends and friends networks and birthday parties and those sorts of things. And uh I was immediately drawn to Taylor and his work because it, it dovetails with so many of the questions that I'm asking them political economy and the you know the foraging question in particular, so To give a sense of where the conversation's going, right, Taylor just assisted me in the delivery of my political economy of the Adirondacks class up at Racket Lake, where we hiked this peninsula that was originally owned by uh, the Durant family, which is, you know, the intercontinental railroad robber baron family, you know, massive Gilded Age wealth. uh, and this this property, right, kind of represents sort of this weird space where they were using local materials and labor and work that kind of on the surface might look like an ecological decision, but it was really just this colossal amount of wealth and power that allowed them to mobilize all of those resources. But today... You know the property is a teaching resource. It's property of SUNY Cortland. It's a national historic site, and so on that site we we're trying to transform it from its you know Gilded Age exploitation sort of uh, origins to this teaching space where uh, you know we're exploring the possible measurements of carbon sequestration on the property, and we're exploring. Uh, what types of food are maybe able to be forged or grown on the property based on soil contents and the lake and all of the environment around it. And it was really interesting to see, you know, my students, you know, wrestle with the eating of a dandelion <laughs> on the property, right? Not only, you know, the the lack of bitterness in their regular diets, but, you know, this idea that food isn't just coming from the kitchen or the grocery store or these other places and how we define food culturally was a really interesting thing to watch them wrestle with in real time so uh yeah i think the the forging question will be an interesting one as we move forward you know in terms of anarchy and exploitation and all of these different ways that we might be able to to process it and uh On the other side, uh, Max introduced himself to me via... I think it was you, Scott, that introduced us over DM or something along those lines through the Twitterverse. And uh, Max and I started talking and reading an awesome essay that he wrote about third spaces. And...
5: um, What are third spaces? Max, do you want (laughs) to...
2: Yeah, well, the um, yes, I definitely... um, I think I just sent you a, a DM somewhere and said, hey, you have no idea who I am. Would you want to <laughs> talk that's, about any of this stuff? That's
5: often how it goes. Yeah.
2: Um, so thanks for uh, not thinking that that was too weird, I guess. My pleasure, and thank you. <laughs> um, but um, let's see. So I was thinking a lot about um, – a lot about restaurants having spent probably 20 years of my working life in them a lot and thinking about some of the what are some of the wonderful things about them and what are some of the things that we could probably you know we stand to improve on them um and uh you know i think like one thing that struck me at the you know in the early parts of the pandemic was like in a lot of other areas a lot of the changes that happened in the restaurant world were underway beforehand and then were somewhat accelerated by the um, by what happened during the coronavirus pandemic in the early part um and so we were thinking about um you know what is sort of the social role that restaurants play uh in communities and what are some of the um what are some of the what is some of the essential but how are restaurants sort of part of the essential fabric of communities and in a way that that, uh, people use them as gathering spaces? And the idea of of food as being like this natural way that people are connected to each other and to the land and to big, broader parts of society without even realizing it. Um, And so in that moment when restaurants were facing this huge challenge of being, you know, cut off from their customer base and separated from the people that support them. And at the same time, you have uh, uh, people cut off from each other and unable to connect, you know, be near each other physically. Uh, and so, you we were thinking about um, like what is what is something that a restaurant could be imagined as in the future uh, or in that moment uh, without some of those natural, without some of those pre-existing ways of, uh, people connecting to restaurants. So, you know, how can a restaurant support people in the community without having a dining room? Um, how can, uh, customers or people connect to each other without having that space to go to? And that's sort of one of some of the ideas we were playing around with as as this project developed.
5: And so what is the definition of a third space? Why is it third rather than second or seventh?
2: So the there's the idea is that it's a space outside of work and home mm. that um can serve as a gathering place and sort of where these spontaneous interactions can occur between people. So a third place could be a restaurant, a cafe, it could be a park, uh any sort of community, you know, other community space, but uh we have, you know, in this day and age, there's not very many spaces that are like totally decommercialized where you can just sit and get together with people. And so restaurants and like, especially cafes that are a little bit more, you know, a little bit less of the sort of fine dining type place is a place, you know, you go to get food, but you could eat food at home, right? You could, you could always just eat food at by yourself somewhere. So um I guess the idea is behind the third place is that um beyond just providing, you know, sustenance to people in the form of food that you eat, it also provides a really important social role to communities for people to be able to gather with each other around food. Beautiful.
5: Taylor, do you want to talk about maybe more specifically how this particular project that became the article that's forthcoming with the money on the left journal came about? How did you how did you pivot from foraging to to what you're up to here.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it really started with Max's essay and we were, you know, we, we originally met to talk about foraging. Um, and then, you know, as we were looking at that, that essay, you know, one of the things that came up for us was that I was, I was at the time I was just for a class project. I was trying to figure out how to teach online. And I had, um, a capstone project class and i had my students um, interviewing chefs and restaurant owners about their experience with the pandemic that's what seemed appropriate at the time and i and we, we really started to develop this like incredible data set of these um, in-depth interviews and a lot of the things that max was talking about in his essay were things that were coming out through this data so I honestly don't remember how it happened, but it sort of transitioned into the process of all of us going through these interviews and, and trying to figure out what was there and how um, how it linked with our ideas about um, the importance of the restaurant industry and, and what was lost, you know, when people couldn't um, meet that way. And we were seeing all of this, you know, all of this, you know, people were predicting that emerging from the pandemic, it was just going to be ghost kitchens. And um, mm. what ended up really happening sort of through the process of us looking at this is that it, it it really became apparent that restaurants are really important for other things besides just providing people with delicious food. And um, a lot of that came out in the interviews as well, as we started looking through the interviews and then, you know, all of this other, other stuff started to emerge too. Like the way that, you know, despite, I mean, restaurants sort of pre-pandemic, you know, it was clear to everybody in the restaurant industry that, that restaurants were, that there were so many restaurants and they, they were so competitive, um, you know, in a way that like, Often they're on the same street in the same building. You know, they're they're competing like for customers on a you know on a daily basis. Um, and you know, and and there's a lot of failure in the restaurant industry. And um, one of the things that we saw from the data is that like you would expect when an industry is hit hard like that, um, sort of from the, the 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 classical model of thinking about. Um, business competition, that they would become more competitive and cutthroat. But what we saw was exactly the opposite. You know, there were at at least four specific instances where restaurant owners were were intentionally collaborating, sharing recipes, getting together to talk about business strategies, thinking um, about ways to... to, um, Overcome the challenges of the pandemic and sharing um, information, collaborating with um, with growers, you know, supporting uh, supporting growers and and customers too. You know, it it just became much more a much more um, collaborative and um, cooperative space. The restaurant industry, at least from what we were seeing in this data, than it was. You know before it had this huge shock, and that really led to you know um, a lot of Ben's thinking about um, cooperative uh, provisioning and and uh, maybe ben you can you can sort of um, <laughs> talk a little bit about the how the theory developed from that those conversations sure, yeah I mean the reading the Reading
1: those uh, long form interviews was really powerful uh, because you know so much of our lives were really kind of following the same sort of patterns where we were all trying to solve problems and refigure out our lives on a you know getting our kids to school and the dining room and all of these really strange things that that occurred and you know worrying about restaurants and our communities and and you know, what the future was going to look like. But what really started to stand out to me, right, because the restaurant uh, specifically in, like, neoclassical or orthodox economics is kind of always used as, like, this, like, perfect example of the competitive firm, it became pretty obvious to me that it doesn't really work that way. And it had always bugged me in neoclassical economics textbooks when they they make the jump from the consumer, right? That is this independent decision-making entity that as long as it's doing it rationally and then the aggregation of all those optimal decisions leads to optimal outcomes, that they make this jump to the firm, right? The, The firm is this coordinator of resources. And they, most of the textbooks will use that word It is a coordinator of labor and capital without really talking about what is doing that coordination. And uh, I had heard uh, Sam Chutapal on, on you guys' show and uh, delved into her uh, antitrust as allocator of coordination rights, along with uh, the co authored piece of Nathan Tankus on the firm exi- exemption in the uh, hierarchy of finance in the gig economy. And I really felt like this, this was something that was gluing all of this stuff together for us that, you know, restaurants were seeking to coordinate, but they didn't really have the rights to do so in, in ways that other organizations, uh, might. And the same sort of pattern I think was also, uh, emerging in my studies of Black cooperative movements in the United States, where they were organizing these collaborative, cooperative structures for both consumption, right? So they began with large buying practices of grains and dairy and things of this nature to drive down costs and allow them to feed more people that emerged into more finished goods production and things like this that uh, allowed for them to coordinate on much larger scales Um, where what neoclassical economics does in obscuring this right and just defining the firm as a coordinator is that it doesn't allow us to really think about you know law and institutions and decision-making practices and how we arrive at those sorts of decisions uh, and those practices and I felt like this pattern is not only uh, part of the the firm structure and its problematic nature. But, you know, it's very much plagues the way we talk about money as well. So where does money come from? Who gets to make decisions about when it's created and for what purposes? Right. Even in modern monetary theory, the use of the terminology, the monopoly producer, I think is problematic. and, And part of this sort of you know, obscuring of the coordination that's required for money to get where it's supposed to go, and that was the other really big pattern that we saw. And the restaurant data was that you know the no matter how big the relief package was, it wasn't designed to help the small independent producer. Right, and so they the the restaurant owners kept talking about. How they don't, they're not heard, they're not seen, the government doesn't understand them. And so this fit really nicely into sort of this bigger question that I've always been interested in since my time at UMKC and studying modern monetary theory and the jobs guarantee is maybe coordination rights, when we start to break this down, can really contribute in the way that we understand something like the jobs guarantee and a, a more tangible way right you know the randy ray and others have written about uh social enterprises as being the vehicle for creating the jobs in that space but what exactly are those jobs and what's the connection between the federal government and social enterprise that allows those funds to to flow in such a way and i've always felt that there's you know, a gap there, there was something missing. And the coordination rights kind of create that legal infrastructure for starting to think about the connection between money resources and real resources and how we define those things and how greatly they would change if credit provisioning was done in order to, to facilitate coordinated production for collective provisioning rather than the concentrated provision that we talk about in the paper.
0: So let's roll with that. What 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 might it look like if those coordination rights what obtains? What possibilities are become possible in that context? So,
1: so I think um, Max, do you want to talk about your friends' restaurant group in Ann Arbor? Uh, I think that that's kind of a nice vision to get that conversation started.
2: So in Ann Arbor, there's a uh, a very well known and beloved, uh, group of restaurants called Zingerman's. And, um, so it was founded, uh, over 25 years ago, started as a small deli. And then they realized that they could, that they wanted to make better bread than they were getting. So they started a bakery and then they decided they wanted to source better dairy than they could find. So they started a creamery and, um, they, then they wanted to open another restaurant and they started roasting coffee. And, uh, now there are multiple, uh, businesses that are sort of all supporting each other. Um, they're all each other's customers and they are, uh, raise the, they raise the profile of each other and support each other. And they also, um, allow, Uh, they can get a lot more done as a bigger institution than as any of them could get done as an independent restaurant on their own. And when I say get a lot done, I mean, you know, they have purchasing power, so they can support smaller, local, more sustainable farms in more uh, significant ways than a small independent restaurant could. Um, They can support – uh you know initiatives like um providing workers health care more in a greater way than the small independent restaurant could and um they uh um yeah so it's a really interesting model for them to have pursued is in addition to all that you know they've basically expanded um horizontally I guess and created this sort of uh self-sustaining network of Of businesses, so the the bakery um, you know it sells bread to the restaurants so now the restaurants don't buy bread from another bakery they buy from their own bakery and they can also participate in conversations about uh, quality control and um, you know sourcing and uh, you know all the all the workers talk to each other as well so there's just a lot that can sort of become possible through uh, getting organized in that fashion that I think is um, there's a lot of uh, a lot to a lot to look to for them to aspire to um, from the perspective, certainly from the perspective of, uh, of restaurant owners. And I think from the perspective of workers as well and the perspective of, of, uh, of the producers. And um, yeah.
4: Well,
3: I was just going to add, you know, this is something that's come up in our conversations because I, you know, I have a background in ecology and, and, I think in academics in general, we tend to emphasize competition over cooperation. Um, And and there was a a study that came out a few years ago looking at um, the the number of papers uh, in ecology that are emphasizing competitive relationships over cooperative relationships. And it's astounding the difference. But in nature, cooperative relationships are actually more important. The more diverse an ecosystem is, the more total productivity there is because it's it's cooperation that actually is the the dominant um, mode of, of interaction. And I think that we see the same thing in economics. We see the same thing in the restaurant industry, even when there isn't sort of the the intentional um, setup uh, cooperation, like Max is talking about with Zingerman's. Um, there's cooperation that happens all the time. That's 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 really important. And we don't recognize that when we study these things. We're always just talking about competition. I'm not sure why that is, but maybe that's another paper for us (laughs) at some point.
5: I'd really like to have you guys uh, elaborate your, uh, the critique that frames your paper. I think you're doing a lot of positive work and work with counter examples that I want us to get into, but you also level a pretty, a pretty strong critique at, I guess we could say dominant models, right? The firm model and the firm exemption, which Ben has already kind of spoken to, but maybe we can say a little bit more about that. Um, and then what Ben brought up and what you call in the paper uh, a concentrated provisioning system right so I think i I get the sense that you're you're calling out uh entities in the world that that actually are concentrated systems right concentrated provisioning systems, but then you're also critiquing the models by by which we understand them so what what's going on with these two terms? And maybe you can give us a little, a little taste of um, some of the industries or histories that you critique in your paper.
1: So I, I think I'll, I'll start, I'll give sort of the the basic idea behind it. And then I, I think I'll pass it off to to Taylor to talk a little bit about industrial agriculture, because he really captures, you know, the dangers and the problems that, Uh, are created when we concentrate provisioning, specifically in our food production system. Uh, But, you know, the neoclassical story that I was critiquing before, um, it it wasn't always that they just assumed that this coordination would occur. Um, One of the more seminal articles uh, by Coase in 1937, The Nature of the Firm, asked a very specific question, why do firms exist? Because it is a an ontological inconsistency to go from the individual to this, the thing that they just call the firm. And he comes up with this interesting definition that the, the firm consists of a system of relationships which comes into existence when the direction of resources is dependent on an entrepreneur. Uh, so he like, goes through all of this like jujitsu to to arrive at the fact that like we have to have firms because we have this entrepreneur and the entrepreneur, we need to give them the the freedom or the authority to direct resources in efficient and productive ways. And and it's interesting in that piece, he he references uh, somebody named Batt, B-A-T-T, who doesn't use the word entrepreneur, but he uses the word master. So it's a master-servant relationship, and the master determines, you know, what the work is that the servant is to be doing and when the servant is to be working and for how long and for how hard and all of these sorts of things, which, you know, the, the lineage of this is a quick jump to slavery and <laughs> uh, white supremacy and patriarchy and all the things that are really pretty disgusting about the idea that the firm just spontaneously emerges out of nowhere. So if we're not really thinking about the the firm as this hierarchical structure, then that allows them to produce and reproduce themselves as hierarchical structures over and over again. And the decision-making process becomes increasingly anti-democratic. And, you know, Alfred Marshall and classical political economy really wrestled with this and, and argued that this is dangerous, right? Because the there is the possibility that we would have bad masters out there that aren't treating their workers very fairly. And if the workers aren't afforded collective bargaining rights in their, in their own right, then it's, the exploitation is just going to continue to be exacerbated. And I think industrial agriculture really epitomizes this, both in the way that the, the transformation of the farm has occurred over the 20th century, Uh, the directives of production on the farm, and then the the corresponding community and the way that the community engages with farming uh, based on this concentrated provisioning system, right? The the use of larger and larger scale production systems. Uh, And it also has really taken nature out of the conversation uh, as something that we should be reciprocating our relationship with in order to cultivate healthy diversity and all of these sorts of things. It, like the worker, it is uh, really left out of the conversation and the decision in meaningful ways. So, the, so that's really where the hierarchy and concentration comes in, right? If, if we're prioritizing an entrepreneur, then we're we're disenfranchising those that are going into the production process
3: uh, and part of these communities of work there's lots of things to talk about with um, industrial agriculture, but one of the things that we look at in the paper there's sort of i i I think this myth that um, you know farms are getting bigger and bigger that's that's clear that's that's happening and and you can see the graph over the over the last hundred years. Cycle kind of accelerated in the nineteen eighties, and um, uh, the, the myth is really that you know they're they're getting bigger because they're they're getting more efficient. It's sort of the idea that farms, bigger farms, are more efficient. One of the things that we talk about in the paper is this research that's been done um, by agricultural economists showing that um, once when there's consolidation. In um, in the the industry, uh, it forces farmers to get bigger, and so they've they've developed this measure that shows that the that um, basically once once the four largest firms have at least forty percent of the market, they're basically able to set price, and so in and concentration in the you know in the and the meat packing industry is is way above that. I think in cattle it's like in the eighty percent or something like that, and in pork it's in the sixties, and and, um, and chicken, you know, it's up there as well. And so what's happening is that, you know, when the firms are able to set price, they're always going to push um, they're always going to push price down because then they're able to sell more. So so. Farmers that, and I'm making these numbers up, maybe they were making $1,000 per beef cattle before, and now they're making $100. They're forced to get bigger. There's no other choice in order to make the same amount of money um, that they that they had uh, been making before from a smaller number of cattle. And so there's this, this idea is that the idea that we've been told is that farms are getting bigger um, in order to increase efficiency, but they're really getting bigger in order to maintain, um, you know, maintain their meager profitability, and um, that's just one of the things that we talk about in the paper. I think it, you know, in the the bigger idea, it sort of goes back to the the complexity that we were talking about before. You know, farms have been. Um, Increasingly forced to specialize. There's no way to be. I mean, it's hard to be a huge farm. It, equipment is so expensive and so specialized, and do a lot of uh, do a lot of different things. And I think that we we see sort of the breakdown of cooperation within um, rural cultures when you know when uh, the farms get so big that that basically you know, towns can't exist anymore. You can't have a school district within the county because, you know, all of the landowners have um, thousands and thousands of acres. And, um, and there, there, are lots of, um, there are lots of pieces to it like that. The less, the less cooperation that there is, the more dysfunctional the biological system is and the more dysfunctional the social systems are.
5: Max what's your uh experience in the industry and and um yeah can you can you flesh out some of some of that
2: yeah and i just wanted to go off of that and say that you know we're accustomed to thinking of of consolidation as being something that is inherently causes a lot of these problems but if you go back and look at the restaurant industry it's definitely an industry that's by and large, pretty unconsolidated. It's a collection of many, many, many independently organized entities, and so then you realize that well, that doesn't necessarily inherently solve any problems either, because regardless of the size of the organization, there's all these problems that are being caused to the environment and bad working conditions and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I I think that thinking about Uh, the coordination rights framework is so important because it doesn't necessarily refer strictly to things like size as the determining factor as to what, you know, what things are going to be like. And it allows you to really think about things more qualitatively. Going back to, I think, question you asked before about what does this allow us to envision? uh, You know, what new possibilities does this allow us to envision is sort of, you know, rather than say, a relief package that's based on like a certain dollar amount, you know, we could imagine a relief package that has the creation of new institutions that would, um, you know, help us create food based solutions to the climate change. There's like any number of ways to the climate crisis. Um, you know, there's so many ways that we can imagine working together to solve those problems. It's hard in a lot of ways because, uh, Restaurants are generally so discreet, you know they're oftentimes separate. maybe you have a couple of chef friends that you know, or you know you're a big chain, and that's like a whole other sort of type of relationship there but um I think you know by and large when you people are when people interact with food um it's at the sort of at the end of the supply chain most. Consumers are not seeing all these things. So I think that's why, uh, for me personally, it was like really incredible to be discussing these issues, uh, with Ben and Taylor, because, you know, I, my whole life, I've been seeing things at the end of the supply chain, being like, well, how can I impact the world in a positive way? And it's like, well, it's actually really important to, um, to go up the supply chain learn about more about the institutions that exist that are sort of in, impacting things and that create the conditions that you're facing instead of necessary, instead of just, you know, you know, so at the end of the supply chain, you're just kind of tinkering around at the, at the margins and there's not too much you can do um in terms of impacting the bigger picture of the, of the food provisioning system. Um and I think that that's not too, uh, to uh, belittle any of the really incredible work that's happening right now around like workplace democratization, which is something that we're seeing a lot of, which is really, really incredible and should be celebrated.
0: And the workplace democratization um, the, vis-a-vis the, the, the sort of need to go up the supply chain and think about coordination is interesting in the context of a restaurant, I feel like. Um, where it seems like the default, at least in terms of stereotypes of how restaurants work, is is hierarchy, right? There's a chef and there's a vision and everyone sort of executes on that vision. Uh and and you know, others support that. Uh I, I guess I'd just be interested, and and maybe we don't spend too much time on this, but but maybe Max, your kind of observation about how a restaurant works, if there's anything that we can abstract or or pull from that to help us understand better what what like the benefits of coordination like how that might be more efficient than something like executing on a single entrepreneur um, sort of restaurant group uh, like Brinker International or something uh Chili's shout out um, <laughs> uh, it was a busboy there first job but uh but yeah I mean uh, it it seems like your your experience uh, in the restaurant space as a third space, which interestingly I think also functions importantly, as you've talked about it, as a second, like a, a a place where where second shifts are carried out, where people come and do their interpretive labor about what's going on at home. There's also having worked in restaurants, like the people who are there have to frequently find their own third space, right. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the bar next door or, or down the street or whatever, um, a lot of, lot of stuff to chew on there, but what, what can, what might you be able to sort of pull from your experience in the restaurant space to, to help us understand coordination rights? I think,
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I think we could probably talk about, we could talk about restaurants for, for as long as you want. But, um, I think that there are, um, I think that there are restaurants are. There's a lot of different kinds of restaurants. There's a lot of different kinds of people that work in restaurants. Um, as a by a, a very large caveat, but um, yeah, I think we can see the usefulness of structure in terms of a hierarchy in a lot of restaurants, and then at the same time, the potential for that structure to become toxic and to create uh, help facilitate exploitative relationships and um, you know create uh, situations without any accountability whatsoever and I think those are you know th- those are that's the flip side of of the structure and of the hierarchy there um, and right now I think that something that we uh, talk about in the paper is how to uh, how how to create um more positive structures and relationships uh that are intentional and then have you know that we're trying to see positive outcomes from and I think where a lot of that work gets sidetracked or taken off get taken off the path is when you know there's this intense focus on uh profitability mm-hmm. in the restaurant world and how that becomes the main and the only sort of goal that a lot of the people that are involved in the decision making uh pursue and they aren't even achieving it but they think that they think that that's the only thing that they need to be doing and focusing on and um you know once those two things clash in the current system there really isn't much to talk about you know if you if you have a great idea then some oh that's cool but oh it's gonna cost it's gonna cost too much money so um, you know we ex- explicitly talk about about financing and and realize that you know in order to uh, in order to achieve some of these more positive beneficial outcomes we need to figure out different ways of of funding these projects uh, rather than you know these private investors. Uh, who are only looking for a return on their investment. And we need to figure out different, you know, different ways to fund these projects and finance them so that we can achieve more social outcomes. Otherwise, it's just going to be, uh oh, you know, run this special and keep your food costs below 28% and, you know, send the dishwasher home because it's slow. And, you know, it's the same old mm-hmm. stuff that is going to be happening all the time. If all we have to go towards is some sort of um, you know, artificially constructed uh, bottom line on the piano.
5: So, what's the composition of private investment in the restaurant industry? Do we do you guys have that data? Is is it how how often are banks investing? How often is it just individual individual investors? How often is it groups? If you don't, that's fine. We can skip this question. I don't know the answer to that. Okay,
0: and in and, and... The context of the supply chain, you know, people interact with food at the end of it, right? But restaurants are very close to the end of it, and that's I think what you were talking about um, max mm-hmm. it, it It's natural that the squeeze of those sort of if we had four groups that are at forty percent setting the price, like they, they, they own forty percent of the farms are setting the prices, that squeeze is shaping and determining what's happening to that dishwasher at nine o'clock when it slows down in the dining. Right. So,
2: yeah. And I just think that it's such an important piece to the puzzle that I, um, I think it would be like, I think it's such an important piece to the puzzle for people that are in restaurants to make those connections to, to realize, you know, what's happening. I guess the, I guess further up the supply chain is the way that Mm -hmm. I think about it. I'm sure there's other ways to frame that. Um, that that that's impacting their ability to, you know, to do the right thing to do what they want to do is the right thing. And to make demands on those other institutions uh, in our society that are affecting those conditions, you know, not just to be like, okay, well, what do we do? Do we, um, do we charge a little bit more? Do we educate our customer base? Do we pivot? Do we do this? Do we do that? It's like, wow, there's like, there's all this other stuff. There's a whole there's bills that determine what subsidies, you know, what we subsidize in the agricultural industry. There's, there's laws like Taylor was talking about that govern, you know, how much consolidation there is in, in industrial agriculture. And all those things go into, you know, how much a case of cauliflower costs and, you know, it doesn't even kind of go into the, um, all the issues around sustainability and biodiversity and climate that we're facing now that are also super, super important.
3: I think one of the, the other interesting things that we saw in this um, restaurant research is that during the pandemic, a lot of restaurants, a lot of the um, chefs and restaurant owners that we interviewed used the pandemic as an excuse to, as a, as a, a moment to address some of the um, inequity issues, um, disparity in pay between front and back of house, uh, toxic restaurant culture, And it, you know, it seemed like to me from that, that the the limiting, what was limiting that their ability to do that wasn't actually, um, wasn't actually uh, margins, because if anything, they were squeezed more during the pandemic. It was just not having the time Mm -hmm. to, you know, to, to think about those kinds of issues. And we saw that change, you know, at a time when restaurants were really struggling.
0: In a lot of cases, if you've got time to lean, you got time to clean. But <laughs> what if everything's already cleaned? <laughs> and yeah, again, over and over. You know, again. one of the
1: one of the things that we heard was that it's really expensive to do what's right, mm. I and mean, it's just really. And and that's one of the questions that we're trying to tackle is why is it so expensive to do what's right. And, and part of that, Max, I think hit on really well is that this narrow objective of profit maximization is just not a good way to organize your society. <laughs> uh, not a very good way to organize your food system, certainly. Uh, you know, when Taylor is talking about industrial agriculture and the, the ability to set prices, right? Part of the price that they're setting is the, the costs that's going to take to change all of this, right? The cost of, uh, you know, water that we can't drink, you know, the cost of soil that's not going to produce food anymore, right? The the dietary changes that this, you know, monoculture growing techniques uh, create across our country, right? The, the pandemic really exacerbated this, these hotspots of food deserts and Access to unhealthy foods and how these patterns uh, overlap with bad access to public health care and limited resources and budgets in your education system and squeezing public universities and all these ways that you know when crisis happens, it's the the actors that are working to solve public provisioning problems that get squeezed the first, right? The immediate response. The pandemic from our leadership was the, you know, the Federal Reserve reenacted all the same tools it used in the financial crisis to stabilize the balance sheets on Wall Streets and in the big banks, while our our leaders in Congress, you know, debated and considered and thought about all the ways in which maybe they could halt the pandemic, and you know, arrived at really some answers that weren't really all that beneficial. Uh, You know, so how do you how do we diversify those decisions about who gets their balance sheet saved and how do we continue to foster environments where, you know, the Zingerman's group is enabled the freedom to expand on and share the knowledge that they're gaining through their cooperative enterprise behaviors Right How it's coordinating geography, how it's coordinating price, how it's coordinating uh, where it's getting its resources from, how much it's investing in research and development, right? How it's sharing that information and teaching others, I think, is a, a big part of, you know, what we're trying to figure out here is how do we help these successful coordinating systems continue to do the business of good work? Uh, in a way that doesn't seem like it's so expensive anymore, uh, you know the the folks that I work with up in the Adirondacks. Uh, I, I think the minimum number of jobs any of one of them is holding right now is three, right? Three jobs to to live year round up in the in a place that they love and they care about, plus the volunteer work, right? The the task force work. Uh, is volunteer care work where none of them are getting paid to do that. And so how do you enable, right, that sort of effort and care for a place uh, where that there's just no monetary device right now to stabilize that other than constantly applying for and hoping that you get grant funding, uh, which, you know, if you've written grants, right, you've been turned down for grants. <laughs> uh, it's far from a sure thing. Uh, and it's super competitive because of the way that we structure, right, money and finance, the preferences, profit-driven activities over those that are going to stabilize the environment, build climate resilience, educate folks, Um uh, and rectify some of the ills that come from uh, the development of an economy based on a master servant sort of relationship in our most dominant economic thinking.
4: It was just after dark when the truck started down the hill that leads into Scranton, Pennsylvania. Can the next day's base for everyone in that cold without despair in
5: So like I wanna tee up uh, a question about the positive alternative financing model, public provisioning of money, of liquidity model that you all are proposing. That's really I think the, the heart the heart of this this paper. Um, but I want to do so by maybe regrouping and flagging some some really important points that have been made in the last few minutes. So one is, um, while the you know various industries, the the agro industry and the restaurant industry may be driven by greed, um, what I also am hearing from you all is that the An equal problem, if not worse problem from your your all's perspective, is the austerity of a profit-driven model, right? And it's the austerity of the profit-driven model that makes everything so quote-unquote expensive in a relative sense that often can feel absolute. And then that austerity creates a number of what feels like forced choices down the supply chain that, while as Taylor says, none of it is absolutely determinative because in the midst of an economic crisis, we see the restaurant industry actually making things better, nevertheless exerts all kinds of pressures that, that might be you know, might feel actual, um, but might just be ideological or emotional um, and, and, that, and that kind of thing. And then I guess another thing that I'm hearing you all saying is that as we think about um, whether we want to use the vertical metaphors or not, um, um, we can obviously use other ones, as Max is saying, we think about up and down the supply chain, it's absolutely necessary to think of not just the first kind of material producers, but to think about liquidity and to think about money at the apex of the supply chain, which doesn't mean that it's the only causal force but it is certainly a major one so um i guess with with all of these aspects of the problem in mind what it, what are you proposing uh would be another way forward that wasn't profit driven that wasn't austerity grounded and um wasn't passing along these uh, unhealthy forced choices and anti-democratic forced choices down uh the system
1: uh so you guys want me to take this one well um you know the way the way i see it is that we've got to relearn how to use money uh and one of the one of the things that you know we hear in the media right now especially around the question of inflation is that money needs money needs to be tied to real resources. What better way to tie money to real resources than into our food system, right? To to start with sort of specific uh, spaces of production where we can more closely link uh, those resources to the money creation process. So in order to help relearn how money works and operates, I think we need to, to enable people to set up and design and experiment their own monetary systems, especially around things like, uh, you know, the restaurant group that Max talks about via Campesina and its food sovereignty efforts that explicitly declare a set of production goals and objectives that are beyond profit and really don't even include it. Like I I think the triple bottom line narrative of social enterprises is is a dead end right uh, you know whenever you have this triple bottom line where you include profit community and environment in a crisis you're always going to have to fall back toward you know keeping your doors open kind of thing and then you spend all your time trying to find the money (laughs) uh instead of actually doing the the work that that you would like to be doing uh so you know allow these folks, uh, to find community, uh, organizations. We, we target anchor institutions, even though they've kind of received a little bit of a pejorative sort of kind of connotation in other writings. I think, you know, universities, hospitals, hospitals, uh, systems, these are big things in communities that aren't just going to pick up and move, uh, at, at the drop of a hat that have a relationship with their community, that are already connected to all sorts of different production systems. That makes sense to be issuers of these sorts of credit provisioning opportunities to emphasize environmental production, emphasize uh, mental health uh, initiatives, education, school districts. Uh, all of these things, because they're they're designed from the get-go not to be profit-driven, but public provisioning institutions. Uh, and so, how do we how do we begin to create goods and services outside of you know the profit-driven motive uh, is something that we've got to learn how to do, and, and learn that there is another way of producing and doing things for each other. It makes life easier and and not so expensive and um and I, I so yeah I mean we've given banks the run of this experiment for you know a, a hundred years now right with the idea that we will finance it infinitum you know these profit driven activities and we'll underwrite this activity. Uh, for anybody and everybody to the point where they're now underwriting activities that aren't producing anything, right? It's the shadow banking and uh, the invention of, uh, you know, the secondary markets and shadow markets and all of these things that aren't really driving actual production. So maybe it's time to start reorganizing this in in a different way to, you know, allow folks the opportunity to produce robust, healthy food systems locally to figure out how it is that they want to make sure their kids are all feeling healthy uh, and getting the care that they need, uh, and so on and so forth.
5: So you talk about in the article, some kind of possibilities that exist in some fairly recent legislation that's been proposed, but hasn't been passed per se. Uh, And then you also talk about kind of bottom up Community complementary currency options, can you potentially speak to those two models?
1: Yeah, so, you know, La Via Campesina, I think it, we, we start with that as our example of food system change uh, because it, it's international in scale. And it sets forth a, a goal and an agenda that is sort of macro, right? So, culturally appropriate foods for everyone. And I think the Green New Deal, the Public Banking Act, the Stablecoin Act, the eCash Act, these really large uh, forms of legislation kind of give us a, a vision for what people want in terms of a democratic society, a sustainable, Economy, these sorts of things. So the the basic idea is there. The question is, how do you enact a Green New Deal? Right? What does it look like in our neighborhoods? And I I, I think lots of people are already doing that work. Right? The Seven Valleys Health Coalition here in Cortland, New York, is working tirelessly to to solve food access issues. The in the community task force is trying to do similar things. They just don't have that the resource connection and liquidity provisioning necessary. And those acts, those bills, all kind of give us the beginning pieces of that infrastructure on what it would look like in order to do that, right? So the Public Banking Act, in particular, I think, could be used to license things like universities and hospital systems and school districts to provision for themselves to ensure that You know, we don't go through this sort of austere, terrible decision-making crisis where we're sending kids back into a classroom too early, or we're not supporting teachers uh, adequately enough. Or, um, yeah, just um, the shortage of the provisioning of healthcare, such as some communities are just so much harder hit by a pandemic than others, because they just don't receive the the standard of care that others do. Uh, We really don't have to experience that sort of inequity if we are designing public provisioning and monetary systems with the idea that we don't have to engage in that sort of behavior anymore.
2: And I think, well, I wanted to, Scott, I wanted to go back and answer a question that you asked earlier and it might fit in now or might fit in at that point, but, um, You know, you asked how restaurants are financed, and I think it's relevant. I think it's a really important question. Um, So, you know, generally speaking, small restaurants are financed through, you know, smaller investors. You know, they're considered called friends and family for the most part. So, they're people that are connected to the people that are going to be the operators of the restaurant, and they're, you know – it's it's through networks that already exist which tend to favor, you know, power structures that are, already exist around, you know, race and class and gender and other um other hierarchies and as the as the restaurant itself gets bigger then you would tend to also, you know, comparatively comparatively start to source your financing from bigger institutions as well so you might then go to a, an investment group or um, if you're going to be a multi-unit operation, it might be private equity that's financing it. And then there's, um, you know, at some point you might get a bank loan, but it's not really a common thing. Uh, I think probably due to like the high failure rate of restaurants, it's not a really exciting thing to give a loan for. Um, but a lot of, a lot of, uh, restaurants will have lines of credit at the bank after they're operating. So. Just to tie it all back into that, I think, um, you know, one way that we could create, uh, the one way that we could make it easier for people to do more good things with food projects is to make it easier for them to access uh, credit and capital to make these projects happen. And that can happen, like, in a lot of different ways, right? That could happen through changing laws. That could happen through – you know as we know banks are are licensed agents of the government that make decisions based on certain sets of criteria so um and it's it's been uh something that people have been calling for in 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 wide in in all areas right like uh make access to credit easier for uh you know, businesses, you know, people of color run businesses, for example. Um, so we could also similarly call for access, uh, access to credit to be made easier for um, for restaurants that fit a set of criteria about how they uh, treat workers and how they're organized internally and how they relate to the their local economy and how they source, uh, source their products and, and all that kind of stuff. And then um, the other thing I wanted to mention was that, um so like ben was just talking about um the interrelatedness of of institutions especially you know anchor institutions and the role they play in their local economies um uh not just uh not just hiring workers but you know making their own procurement decisions and so one thing that uh is important in in the food Uh, in the food world is for say schools to be, uh, changing how they source their products. And they have contracts that they sign with, um, you know, big, often really institutional food service suppliers that are definitely not thinking about sustainability, not thinking about workers' rights and not thinking about a lot of these issues. And so applying pressure, uh, applying pressure there, which is something that, you know, is, a, is something that you know, say, parents could do if they have if they have kids in a school, um, or students could do if they're at the school, and 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 applying pressure for these institutions to make their purchasing decisions uh, more responsibly and to not. So that's something that's always been happening, but also to apply pressure to sort of perhaps create more new institutions that are interrelated and connected and can make these decisions together in, in local and regional economies can happen.
5: Yeah that's wonderful. I just want to add something that I think is I think we are all assuming but we have no one's actually said it aloud which is um if we say through the public banking act establish uh um all kinds of different uh bank licenses and and banking and financial institutions in the public interest that have certain kinds of criteria uh, and that some maybe are specially designated for regional and local restaurants, or maybe they specialize in a host of similar kinds of services like that. I mean this I'm not an expert, I can't right. Um, I'll let the experts take it from here, but crucially, crucially right, this access to credit a need not be something like a traditional loan, right, where precisely one has to um, drive the business forward through the motive of profit in order to repay the loan. So that's the first thing. Maybe some of it is a loan, some of it is a grant, maybe, maybe all of it is a grant, as long as your obligation is a social qualitative and ecological obligation, rather than merely a quantitative one. And then I think uh secondly thinking about the banking the public banking system itself as being um <laughs> what we might call using conventional language perpetually in deficit <laughs> perpetually in debt to the society that it is serving and that way you reverse the kind of drain <laughs> that that the private banking system Creates right the private banking system says no feed me feed me or or we're gonna die and everyone has to feed everybody else or else every everyone's gonna perish, whereas if you have a bountiful you know like like the Fed is right a, a bountiful source that says um, no you know are we are we meeting the eco social goals that we're after here then then you're really putting. Uh, you know I, I love water metaphors uh, you're really putting a
2: plug on that drain I hate water <laughs> <laughs> I mean it yep. makes me think of the line you know that the public deficit is the private is the private surplus and it's like um, you know as Ben was saying we need to figure out ways to to use the monetary framework to do good things and to create public things that have public purpose in in society. As yeah, you just I think, described.
1: I think we need to, you know, I love calling money an IOU, right? And, and i I think more than just being a promise to pay, it should be a promise to do. Right. And the and the more you gather folks like the Seven Valley's Health Coalition or uh the folks up in the Inlet or you know, the restaurateurs that we studied, right, when you are bringing together collective effort to feed your community, to stabilize employment, right, all that work is unpaid care labor for your community, right, that you are uh, taking on more and you should be receiving the credit for that, those effort and that work uh, so that it can continue, that it can continue and grow and expand, right, so what are we prepared to promise one another, right? How are we willing to promise each other an ecological, culturally appropriate food system on a global scale? Uh, And if so, what are the resources that we need to do that? And, And this is really just a change in the underwriting practices, right? Max keeps bringing up standards or criteria, right? We rewrote the book, uh, all of the books and created all sorts of coursework on underwriting when we changed mortgage lending laws uh, so that, you know, soldiers returning home from the war could buy new suburbia sort of tracts of land and houses, right? Uh, it, this is the same sort of work that needs to be done. We need to, to figure out how to underwrite. Uh, and to provision a healthy, sustainable uh, and culturally appropriate food system at a at a global scale, right? And that pre- starting there is a good place to, uh, you know, expand into the other areas, right? A culturally appropriate and sustainable arts culture and healthcare and all the things that, you know, make life meaningful and useful and wonderful, uh, that tends to get uh crushed (laughs) uh by other things uh i i think something that really captures this was uh on twitter not too long ago there was like this like kerfuffle about whether or not restaurants would exist under socialism i was like what like where is your imagination right what you know why would people stop wanting to prepare foods and to do it in a in an interesting and artistic and opening and grateful way for one another? Right? Where would where would the, Why would that experimentation and that desire to do things for one another disappear? Uh, I think McDonald's would disappear right under uh, you know sort of a this sort of public banking infrastructure but I, I think we would still have wonderful arts and culture experiences in our society uh, maybe more so and more readily available instead of having to sit by ourselves or you know on the couch in the dark watching Netflix right we would be out in the public space watching performances and, and have a much greater and larger third space for all of us to enjoy. Can I
5: ask this Taylor, how much has the work you're doing in collaboration here informed your pedagogy?
3: That's an interesting question. I mean, uh, wow, I'm going to have to think about that a That's little fair. bit. I, I think, in so many ways, I think we sort of artificially um, uh, segment. Um, economics and biology and you know, agriculture is one of the places where they come together. Restaurants is one of the places where they come together. And I spend a lot of time talking to my students, especially my young students, about you know the the, the interconnections between these things and um, and the you know the. For, for example, um, healthy soil. You know, healthy soil is, is really important for um, having good-tasting, nutritious food. That's obviously really important to a chef. It also has the, the added benefit of helping us to store carbon, which uh, addresses the climate crisis. And we've seen from agricultural economics that it's also, the best indicator that we can find for the financial success of farms. There's, a, there's an almost direct correlation between the percentage of organic matter that you have in your soil and the financial viability and resilience of the farm. And so, you know, I, I I've been thinking, you know, since having these conversations, a lot more about um, the the sort of artificial duality that we that we create between um the, the various silos in our institutions and i think food is it is a perfect place to start breaking those apart and making these these connections because there are some some very obvious and intuitive connections in the food system that uh that that challenge this notion that these are all separate ideas and entities. And I think that's something that um, that that I've been able to bring to my classes and bring to my students um, in a richer way as a result of our conversations and, and as a result of our collaboration.
4: Yeah,
1: I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, the, the siloing in academics work is, is really detrimental. Uh, and so hopefully this this paper and some of the things that we're thinking about with food can can help us to start to break down uh, some of those false barriers between our, our intellectual pursuits. And that's frankly why I was so drawn and interested in submitting the paper to you guys, because I think you and the money on the left is really at the forefront of pushing the boundaries of interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity in in really creative and amazing ways. And, you know, if you scan the references here, it's a who's who of people that have been on on this show. Uh, So, yeah, in in terms of teaching people, I think, you know, as a a counterexample of what not to do, Bitcoin serves as a point of reference in the paper that like. You know, here's a philosophy grounded in scarcity exchange, you know, that is just gross. It's not working. It becomes a speculative asset, right? It's burning all sorts of energy for the production of nothing uh, except, like, Twitter followers, (laughs) you know.
5: That's something. (laughs) Uh,
1: So, You know, we can design monetary systems and we can implement them at all sorts of scales. And so, you know, don't be afraid to try to set up a monetary system, you know, in your community or your classroom and and use design principles that you learn about in this podcast and from people uh, that think about money and monetary sovereignty and how it needs to be dissolved from a sort of narrow order sort of perspective to be more like La Via Campesina and inclusive and trans, you know, beyond boundaries, uh, sorts of ideas. And so, yeah, uh, you know, I'm trying to teach my students by running monetary systems in my classes to, uh, to promote nonprofit sort of work. And they seem to get it. And they, they like the idea that money isn't the root of all evil. Uh, but can be something more productive and at, um, a means of connecting folks rather than segregating them and and separating their interests.
5: Max, what what's it like to be an MMT chef and <laughs> and whatever that whatever
2: resonance you you hear? There? Uh, weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean one one thing I really I wanted to say quickly was how important I think it is to take. Um, to take the MMT insights and apply them in areas where they're not traditionally uh, or rather just where they have not necessarily been applied yet. And I really think food is, uh, is, is, is super important. Um, and I think it's something that we have to do moving into the future. Things are going to get not great in a lot of ways uh, in terms of the climate there's some things that are kind of, there's changes that are going to occur that, you know, despite our best efforts will probably result in things getting tough for farmers and for uh, for our food system uh, from coming from the land and from the sea. And it's going to change things a lot. So um, I think that we're going to find that uh, you know, communities that have sort of taken a lot of the MMT insights and figured out how to translate them, uh, into, uh, local and regional levels, it, it's going to be such an important, uh, development. And, you know, it's not going to be all, uh, oh, well, the federal government can do anything, uh, you know, it can pay for anything about, it. cause if it doesn't, then we still have to fix problems and take care of each other we can't only be just waiting for that to happen there so and food systems you know it's a it's a it it, they work regionally right and these um so it's a natural way to sort of take a lot of this learning and figure out ways to apply it and i like would again i i would uh echo um what ben was saying to encourage people to try to experiment um in their communities and and work uh work with each other to build these systems um that are resilient, that use money and that uh take care of each other because it's it's important now it's gonna only become more important for sure.
1: And, and just to build on that uh for a second, you know, one person that's not with us but was really instrumental in the development of this paper is Jakob Weinig. Uh, who really helped with the earlier draft of the paper, and his moral economies of money uh, really s- served as inspiration for a lot of the ideas here. And uh, and that book is full of real world examples of how you know we have come together as communities to create monetary systems and to to change provisioning not just of agricultural products, but you know, build entire public waterworks systems. So definitely familiarize yourself with his work if you haven't done so already.
2: And I think I I love that you brought up that, that, uh, that Twitter moment about, about what, whether there would be restaurants in some unspecified, uh, post revolutionary future, but I really hope that we, which is a really silly premise, but I really hope that, uh, that restaurants, Change in the future. (laughs) I think that we can all together envision ways of, um, creating, you know, creating social spaces, uh, that benefit communities that, that feed people, um, and that don't replicate these sort of these harmful systems and these harmful hierarchies and these toxic work environments. And that I think, uh, I think culturally appropriate is a really important phrase. And I think that, um, you know, restaurant, places where you can get food in a community should um, serve the community, and there should be a relationship there. And it shouldn't... uh, And, um, yeah. So, there's plenty of imagining that we can all do. And uh, if any other chefs are listening, um, get in touch. (laughs) We can imagine together and hopefully build something.
0: Any additional closing thoughts or reflections?
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, I think... I really think that we've covered a lot of ground here and, and, you know, that's been one of the really nice things about this collaboration is that because we come from different um, perspectives, I think, you know, a lot of the things that Max was saying about the restaurant industry goes for farming as well. We it's, it's very clear that we need to change our farming system and um, you know, the environmental reasons are very clear and the food security reasons are very clear. And the economic reasons are very clear that the the crumbling of our rural communities. And um, I don't think that that we are um, as explicit about that in the restaurant industry. I think people um, that critique has been made more powerfully about agriculture. But I think we also need to think about the connection between the two. I, I tell my students all the time, you know, restaurants drive the the they drive the the agricultural system that we have because restaurants are the end users. And we've told farmers for the last uh, 100 years that what's important to us in restaurants is cheap food. And I think that we need to start changing that um, conversation and, and thinking about how to send farmers a different message because farmers will respond. If, if, if what's actually important is flavor, and nutrition and a healthy environment and healthy water. Sorry, Scott. Then, um, <laughs> then that's then, then farmers will respond um, to that. And so, um, I think we have to keep in mind that that, that connection within the food system, you know, these aren't isolated enterprises, F- food uh, is one interconnected web of activities people culture.
5: Well that's a beautiful place to I think stop. Ben, Max Taylor, thanks so much for writing this piece thanks so much for joining us and for this wonderful conversation Thank, Thank you. you. It's been fun Thanks,
2: thanks for having a Great us. honor to be here and to be working with you all
4: Take a